0: Hello and welcome to Civil War Weekly, the podcast that answers the question, what happened this week in the American Civil War? I'm your host Tim Patrick and this is episode 150, January 29th to February 4th, 1864. Last week, we talked about the action in Tennessee in the Battle of Fair Garden. In the process, we also had a final wrap on the Knoxville and East Tennessee campaign, Longstreet not really doing a whole lot. We talked about two battles at Jonesville, also in the General Vicinity. We also talked a little bit about Athens, Alabama. This week, we will spend some time in Mississippi going over Sherman's Meridian campaign. Before we do that, though, we need to talk a little bit about action in North Carolina. We are going to go to a familiar place, back to New Bern. Of course, before we actually get to New Bern, we need to talk a little bit about Some Patreon content, and we've been talking about how there will be an episode coming out here where we did a look side-by-side with The Beguiled, the older Clint Eastwood version and the newer version. That one is not quite ready yet, Uh, so we'll be doing some quick hitters here. First, we'll be doing a Red Badge of Courage movie review, and that's going to be an Audie Murphy piece, and uh, talk a little bit about that because that event is coming up here, what we maybe consider Stephen Crane to be writing about was either Chancellor's or the Wilderness, one of the two, and we will be reviewing that and talking about that movie, and then we'll be having something a little bit different as well. We'll be looking at some statistical analysis, and if you're a big numbers person like me, it might surprise you to know some of these casualty figures and kind of take a look at that. maybe talking a little bit about the effectiveness of certain generals as well, and the battles that they were engaged in, at least the major battles of the Civil War. So if that sounds like something that would interest you, we're going to be doing, first we're going to be doing the Red Badge of Courage, and then we'll be doing the statistical analysis. And then we should be finally getting out with the Beguiled. So that one is a little bit delayed, and we will get everything out to the Patreon feed. So if any of that stuff sounds like it's going to be interesting to you, there's a link to the Patreon in the show description. And of course, those proceeds do go toward the journal upkeep of the show. They are greatly appreciated so you may be wondering why exactly we are heading to New Bern. As we have mentioned before, that city was a key coastal town. It would also be potentially important as a jump-off or base for Confederate blockade runners, being conveniently on the News River, which made its way out into the Pamlico Sound, and then of course, the open ocean. New Bern, though, was well defended, sporting heavy earthworks. Despite the garrison being only some 5,000 men, the U.S. Navy was also present to provide support. We have seen the winning combination of well-defended ground forces being paired with adequate gunboats, especially on the Mississippi. Even in the cases where the ground forces might not have been quite as prepared, like say Milliken's Bend, the Navy does come to the rescue and they're able to definitely make an impact, so if you recall that action but it still seemed like a good time to strike on the part of the Confederacy. To lead the expedition would be George Pickett. Pickett might seem like an odd choice, but he is still at this point to be considered a capable officer and in need of some redemption. In addition, if you recall the Suffolk Campaign, there had been operations at least in the general vicinity, so there was some familiarity with the region. North Carolina, along with Virginia, had suffered heavily at Gettysburg, and there were concerns about the protection of both the Tar Heel State and the Old Dominion. If you recall from some of our previous episodes, this had already been a problem. There had been some rumblings from state legislatures in the direction of Jefferson Davis for better support. So, for the Confederate government in the winter, when troops would be necessary to spread out, avoiding logistical issues, the time to strike would seem to be prime. Pickett too would have some 13,000 to 15,000 men, which would at least seem to be an adequate force to knock out the garrison. Seth Barton, Robert Hoke, and James Deering would all command wings of a proposed attack on the city. We have met all of these names before, notably Barton and Hoke. Deering is a colonel at the time of the second attempt on New Bern, and he has risen through the ranks from being a lieutenant. He would become one of the last officers to die during the war at the Appomattox Campaign. Commander John T. Wood would control a naval contingent, which would try to bring the Union Navy down a peg. Getting a W might be political and practical all at the same time, but standing in the way would be Ennis Palmer commanding the Union garrison. Palmer, at this point, was a veteran going all the way back to First Bull Run. Before then, he had attended West Point and served in Mexico, including the key battles of Churubusco and Chapultepec. After Bull Run, the New York native had served well in cavalry and infantry, including commanding a brigade in the Peninsula Campaign. A career soldier, he would continue to serve in the army after the war, retiring past its conclusion. Needless to say, New Bern is in good hands with Palmer at the head. Even with the disparity in troop strength, it would not be an easy task. You have to wonder, too, if Robert E. Lee doesn't necessarily want to maybe put Pickett on a side path, shall we say. We mentioned how he has this habit of getting rid, so to speak, of officers who do not meet his standards. And certainly, while Pickett was considered still capable at this point, as we mentioned, he's not necessarily shown anything to really prove that, right? He has this reputation that he had built in mexico and then he doesn't really do a whole lot during that he gets wounded at gains his mill he has this debacle at gettysburg he has all these rumors flying around him about how he's not really taking his duties very seriously he's more interested in a, a young lady that has become his bride so he hasn't really shown to be what it necessarily maybe he should have been on paper right so one has to wonder if maybe robert e lee is also kind of pushing him to the side just a little bit. So, the plan, as mentioned, would be a three-pronged attack. One would be led by Robert Hoke, who was to attack a Union outpost of the 132nd New York along Bachelors Creek. Confederates would skirmish with their Union counterparts, and we do have some eyewitness accounts. Here, we have an account from the action at Bachelors Creek. Arriving at Kingston on January 30th, the 8th North Carolina Regiment State Troops Marched some five miles in the direction of New Bern and bivouacked for the night. On the morning of January 31st, the march was continued, approaching the enemy's pickets in the evening. Early on the morning of the 1st of February, sometime before daybreak, we were ordered to march. We were now near Badger's Creek, over which was a bridge where the enemy had a blockhouse strongly guarded by his pickets. Our advance guard soon had work on its hands. The enemy made a stubborn resistance at the creek. Whilst our advance guard was attempting to effect a crossing and get possession of the bridge, the main body of the regiment, under the command of Colonel Henry M. Shaw, was resting by the roadside, about 200 yards from the blockhouse, which guarded the bridge. As the firing was brisk at the creek, quite naturally the bolts came frequently over the regiment in the rear. Colonel Shaw was sitting on his horse in the middle of the road, Brigadier General Thomas L. Klingman, North Carolina, being close to him. While thus waiting to capture of the blockhouse and the bridge, and apparently not realizing that the danger was about him, Colonel Shaw was struck in the head by a bullet and killed instantly. Lieutenant Colonel James N. Whitson succeeded as Colonel of the 8th North Carolina Regiment. By daylight, our advance guard had forced a passage across the creek and secured possession of the bridge, over which we marched in hurried pursuit of the retreating enemy. The pursuit was kept up until we came in range of the enemy's batteries around the town. The line of battle was formed, but it was soon discovered that enemy's batteries could fire on us from front and flank. One shell struck in the line of the 8th North Carolina Regiment, mortally wounding David Berenger of Company K. It soon became evident that an attack on the enemy's works could not be undertaken, with the least prospect of success. We were ordered to fall back, out of range of the enemy's guns, and then began our return to Kingston. The 8th North Carolina Regiment arrived at Kingston on February 3rd, remained there a few days, and then returned to Petersburg. So there we go, we have an account of kind of the skirmishing that happened. It was at least some brisk skirmishing, as we have a Colonel Shaw being killed in that action. And then we have a description of just how formidable the defenses around the town were. We mentioned that a little bit earlier. Here we have another description of the action. In this campaign, Brigadier General Hoke's brigade consisted of the 6th, 21st, 54th, and 57th North Carolina regiments and the 1st North Carolina Battalion sharpshooters, and attached to it were the 43rd North Carolina Regiment and 21st Georgia. In approaching New Bern, this regiment arrived at Badger's Creek, about seven miles from the city. It made an narrow attack upon the enemy's works but discovering that the flooring of the bridge across the creek, about 75 feet long, had been removed. Lieutenant Colonel William G. Lewis informed Brigadier General Robert F. Hoke that if he would send him plank from the pontoon train, he would renew the attack as soon as practicable. Bernard General Hoke complied, and the attack was made at daylight the next day. One of the companies laying the plank under fire, the others crossing over, also under fire, driving the enemy and causing a retreat to New Bern. There were also some Union troops at Clark's Brickyard on the Atlantic and North Carolina Railroad, nine miles above the city, and information was received that a train of cars had been sent from New Bern to bring them in. The 43rd North Carolina Regiment State Troops was ordered to capture this train without wrecking it, if possible and accordingly, a three-mile march at quick and double-quick time was made to intercept it. When the regiment got within about 20 or 30 yards of the track, the train was passing at its highest speed, and shots were exchanged between the opposing parties. If success had attended this movement, the purpose of Brigadier General Hoke was to place his troops on the train, ride it into town, and surprise the garrison. Major General Pickett's expedition, however, was not successful, and the troops fell back to Kingston remained there a few weeks and then marched on to Plymouth, North Carolina. This one I also put in here because of the sort of concept that they would have of trying to get into the town via train. It's an interesting idea maybe something out of a movie shall we say and speaking of that we did actually have a movie review of the horse soldiers where the Confederate troops kind of do just that they have men rolling into town on jumping off the train and it's kind of a deception sort of piece. I should say, because they are supposed reinforcements that come in. Now we know that didn't actually happen in real life during uh, the Grierson raid, but this is an interesting concept. and shows maybe something somebody was thinking about it, right? At Bachelot's Creek on the 1st, the Confederates would push back the 132nd New York, but having little else to show. Some Union reinforcements were captured. Having sufficiently put pressure on New Bern, Hoke would halt in the face of the fortifications. Barton was going to then swing in on the Union defenses, crossing the Trent River a little to the west. Putting up at least a decent defense was going to be a contingent of artillery, as well as infantry of the 17th Massachusetts, and so Barton would pause. He would believe there to be a bigger force facing him, and it would be an uphill battle against the Union earthworks. Daring's force would also not attack, believing that they were facing a larger force themselves. For some of these men, it's probably easy to understand why they would not want to attack Fixed Works. It had not been too long before where they had seen their men melt away at the angle at Gettysburg. But there were enough new troops, including those from Montgomery Corps, who had not participated and added units from North Carolina, so not assaulting would still be questionable. It would also be questionable that Jefferson Davis would be convinced to remove Pickett from overall command replacing him with Hoke, especially after Pickett decided the element of surprise was lost. Hoke would continue to operate in North Carolina, so stay tuned, but in the meantime Pickett would call off the attack, retreating on the 4th of February. So the land attacks would fail, but this did not mean we are done with the action. Remember, we talked about John Wood and his naval contingent, Confederate sailors and Marines were gathering some 220 men on several small boats armed with 12 pound cannon. Their objective would be the USS Underwriter, a side wheeler with four guns commanded by acting master Jacob Westervelt. Moving down the News River, they would reconnoiter the Union dispositions on the 1st. Their attack would be planned for early morning on the 2nd of February. At 2:30 they would launch their attack. The Union navy alert to the attempt Hand-to-hand fighting would erupt on the deck of the vessel, with 5 Confederates and 9 Union Sailors killed. Acting Master Jacob Westervelt would be killed during this struggle. Having successfully taken the ship, Wood would attempt to stoke the fires, building up steam to get the Underwriter back to friendly lines. Unfortunately, this plan would have one major flaw. At 2.30 in the morning, the Underwriter was not going to be prepared to move, and now that there had been a belief birdie struggle the Union land defenses would be alerted to the fact that the Confederates had seized the prize. Guns on the shore would open up on the underwriter, prompting Wood to set fire to the ship and abandon the capture. Having not done so would have made him a sitting target. Eventually, fire would spread to the magazine, causing explosion and the destruction of the USS underwriter. While the vessel had not been captured, the Confederate Navy showed sparks of still being alive. It did still mean that the joint operations had essentially failed, though, one ship down being not too much to show for the waterborne assault. This would confirm the decision on the part of Pickett to withdraw. So it's tough for Pickett here. We see how his subordinate officers are going to essentially let him down. They're going to not want to assault these fixed positions. And true, it is very hard on the part of infantry to assault these fixed positions with a frontal assault, right? And so they're going to kind of let him down and then the Navy is going to kind of let him down and nothing is really going to go right for him in terms of the campaign. It does not mean he's going to be done commanding troops in the field. However, as we mentioned earlier with his previous performances, you have to wonder if this is kind of all adding up for him at this point. But before Pickett would be relieved, he would be involved with some controversy, ordering the execution of some 22 prisoners. After the failed attempt at New Bern, the Confederates would withdraw to Kingston. With them, they had a large amount of prisoners. Now, we have also mentioned how North Carolina is not going to be entirely one-sided for the Confederacy. Many of the citizens were turning over to the Union, and desertions were pretty rampant, ironically, especially under Pickett's command. Rumor, too, there was dissolution over the expanding of conscription in the southern states, and with even token forces on the home front removed, there was even more of an opportunity to return home. So there were some desertions, and part of Pickett's operations was going to try to relieve the amount of desertions, even to round up some of the men and bring them back into the army. The Confederacy definitely depleted in manpower. Some of the Confederate memoirs have mentioned that's how they go, and they round up these guys who have gone on, shall we say, French leave, that's what they used to call it, where they kind of don't get excused in terms of their absences, And then they go back to their farms and stuff. So it's not necessarily like they're executing these individuals. They're trying to make sure they get back into the army. So uh, I think there's often a misconception that that's exactly what happens to these individuals. But in terms of the Confederacy, they definitely need the manpower. So they're not going to be trying to waste anybody. Now, it just so happened that many of the prisoners captured during the campaign were from the second North Carolina U.S. Some of these men were known to have served for the Confederacy, otherwise been in the Home Guard perhaps conscripted without even having served. Pickett would be enraged, especially at two officers, Haskett and Jones, ordering their court-martial and execution. Union officers would not be pleased at this course of action, and they would lobby for the lives of the prisoners. John Peck would exchange letters with Pickett, one such threatening to execute any Confederates. Pickett, though, would have several hundred men captured, so they would be able to counter anything Peck could do with more lives. Ironically, Peck would also identify more former Confederates in these letters. In all, Haskett and Jones, as well as 20 other men, would be executed. Now, Pickett would actually flee to Canada after the war, as his arrest was ordered for these actions. He would be cleared and return to take the Oath of Allegiance, but would die a failure. Now, if we add up the action that Pickett has already gone through and then we factor in this execution of prisoners, it certainly doesn't look very good for Pickett. However, I think in this certain scenario, he's kind of in the wrong place at the wrong time. There's other instances where individuals are captured. You know, We're going to talk about Fort Pillow here as we get into 1864, and that is a scenario where there's a little bit more to the story than just being a massacre, right? There are individuals who had served in the Confederate Army or had otherwise maybe not been so nice to Confederate citizens, and there was a little bit of anger there, right? So having these men that have been captured and you know that they were in Confederate service and then obviously they are deserters and they decide they're going to now serve for the Union Army or take the over oath of allegiance. And in some cases, right, there are individuals who... In Missouri, who don't necessarily want to do that, but they have to because it's mandatory for everyone to join militias. These individuals, obviously, for whatever reason, maybe they think it's going to protect their families better. Maybe they are hungry and there's supply deficiencies in the Confederate Army, obviously, and now they're going to go over to the Union because that's going to seem to be a better choice for them. For whatever reason, they're now going to be serving in the Union Army. And I think Pickett's just kind of in the wrong place at the wrong time because you're having all these setbacks in the Confederacy. Pickett is personally having setbacks. And then it all kind of comes out in terms of an unfortunate event where individuals are executed, these 22 men. So it's an interesting look. Might seem pretty cut and dry on the surface, but when we kind of take a little bit of a deeper look, I think it's a little bit more complicated, much like a lot of the other things that we talk about in this series. So we need to shift our attention to the Meridian Campaign in Mississippi, probably something overlooked by many Civil War historians. We have mentioned that there are some moving parts to early 1864. Grant is going to want Sherman to strike into the interior of the Magnolia State. We will talk about how Thomas will move on Dalton as part of this process next week. Longstreet being where he was would be an issue. He was still in a position where he could deal the Union supply lines a tough blow. Combining with Joseph Johnson and hitting Middle Tennessee was on the table and more feasible than moving into Kentucky. But Johnson was not willing to play ball, and we have already covered the supply problems being faced in that region. Sherman would actually have an idea to eliminate the Confederate threat at Meridian all the way back around the Siege of Jackson following Vicksburg. Remember, he had decided not to pursue Johnson and his army after that battle, mostly because of the conditions and the fact that his troops had just undergone not one, but two sieges. We documented that although Lincoln would state that the Father of Waters flowed unvexed to the sea, there was a real concern the rebels would still raid along the river. Tom Green, amongst others in the department, would prove this to be the case. While Sherman hitting Meridian would help to alleviate some of these issues. We mentioned too that Nathaniel Banks would soon be launching a campaign up the Red River. This could be a good combined action. We are going to talk about how there will be general offensives in a variety of places here in 1864 for the Union, but these would be a kind of prelude. Grant would give Sherman his blessing for the operation. Johnson had to send some portions of his gathered troops elsewhere, so it was not a bad idea to launch an offensive. Sherman though would take command directly of troops in Memphis. We talked about how Stephen Hurlbut was there commanding and could provide 10,000 men to this venture, which, considering the depletion in enemy forces, would be sufficient. 12,000 in total would be ready at Memphis, with several divisions of McPherson's corps as well set to depart from Vicksburg. In all, Sherman would have a very sizable command, including over 7,000 cavalry under Suey Smith. Smith would have Grerson, who of course was familiar with the area. Swift action would be the order of the day. Smith would need to hit Meridian before the Confederates had time to respond. Leonidas Polk was the overall commander of the rebels in the sector, but as was often the case, there was an inflated numbers reported for the South. Loring and Samuel French were both nearby with a couple thousand men, as was S. D. Lee and Forrest, adding to that number. Confederate generals were convinced that the Union troops would strike at Mobile, which was a good guess. Remember that Banks was going to float that idea before linking up with the rest of the Union Army in Georgia. Therefore, reinforcements were gathering in a position to support that city instead of, say, Meridian. Polk would even leave his command with a luring, probably an indication he was not worried of what was happening in Mississippi. It's tough, too, for Mississippi, right? We talked about this a little bit in that once Vicksburg has fallen, you know, we had Champion Hill, we had Corinth, Vicksburg Falls... There's not really a whole lot of emphasis on that state. Forrest is going to kind of breathe some life back into that. He's going to be pretty well regarded in that particular part of the country for a while because he does do everything in his power to try to defend this region. Uh, But as far as the tactical importance of Mississippi, you know, the Trans-Mississippi is already cut off from the rest of the Confederacy. So there's not going to be a whole lot of emphasis there. Early February would see the column start moving, McPherson from Vicksburg and Hurlbut's command from the north. Additionally, there would be skirmishing on the Yazzie River, resulting in Confederates briefly holding the town before being retaken by Federals. This would not be of any real tactical significance. Skirmishing would also enroll near the Old Champion Hill battlefield between the advancing Union column and Lee's cavalry. Eventually, the Union forces would retake Jackson, and move across the Pearl River, despite the rebels burning the pontoon bridge over that waterway. By February 7th, the Union troops had made it to Brandon, burning much of the military-significant structures here. Sherman has been criticized for leveling much in terms of civilian targets during this campaign, possibly because of the death of his son. However, I have seen argued against this perception. Confederate forces continue to prove ineffectual in their defense of Mississippi, More towns would be burned out of anything cotton or otherwise that would help the Confederate war effort. In one particular instance, Confederate cavalry came close to capturing or killing Sherman as he stayed in a house in Decatur, Mississippi. In fact, it was S.D. Lee's cavalry, particularly part of Red Jackson's brigade, which would provide the most resistance, albeit just nipping at the larger Federal Army. Loring would evacuate any military supplies from Meridian, escaping with French on the 14th, just hours ahead of the enemy column. Much like with Jackson, Sherman would choose not to pursue the enemy into Alabama. He would pause and destroy the key railroad juncture, staying all the way until the 20th before withdrawing. But you may be asking what exactly happened to Suey Smith. Was he not supposed to beat the infantry there? Bill Smith was delayed back at Memphis, staying and waiting for a brigade to be fitted before marching. He will claim that Sherman had given him the okay. Smith will run into force, though, so hold that thought for a future episode. In the meantime, we will look at Jackson and now Meridian as dress rehearsals for Georgia and then the campaign into the Carolinas for Sherman. With that, we'll call it a day. This week, we talked about Athens, Alabama, and continued action at New Bern, North Carolina. We also covered the uneventful but impactful Meridian campaign in Mississippi, Next week, we will head into Virginia for some action and an escape from Libby Prison. If you like what you hear, please make sure to leave a review. Posted in the description should be a link to the website, as well as Patreon and Venmo information. Support for the general upkeep of the show is greatly appreciated. Feedback is always welcome. Questions, comments, concerns, the email is cwweeklypod at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening, and have a great week.